Well, we, last week we finished uh, John, uh, James chapter 2, which was heavy on works, that if you have faith, that faith should be displayed or manifested in works. Uh, a transformed life will be reflected, in, and he shows the importance of works. It's not in opposition to faith, uh, but it's, it's complementary. We, we kind of went through that. But did anybody have anything to say on that? I didn't want to cut that off too quick last week. We're going to finish a little early today because I think they're setting up for a wedding reception, if I'm not mistaken. Anything on chapter 2 from last week? Faith, works, what, what, what James was saying there. We'll, we'll circle back because he does re- reference it again. And then as we study James, if you notice, first of all, he's writing to who? Who's his readership? Yeah, he says that, to the, to the scattered. You know, he says that in uh, verse 1, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. So, like the book of Hebrews, uh, predominantly written to a Jewish reader, believers, but a uh, readership. And so he's, he encourages them, but he also, he can be, uh, how do you say it? He can be strict with them, too. You know, he, he doesn't pull back, but he constantly references them as my brethren. My beloved brethren. So he's very pastoral, even when he's saying difficult things. And his style is almost proverbial. He does little snippets. And we're going to see that in chapter 3 where he'll use a lot of metaphors. You know, the tongue is like bridling a horse or the rudder of a ship or these kinds of uh, images, which is suggestive of uh, Hebrew poetry or Proverbs. So uh, chapter 3, he starts out again, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. A very important point. This whole, like I said, this whole chapter 3 is going to be on words and the power of words and the power of the tongue. But he's going to start out with this idea of teachers. And this is referenced by our Lord in chapter 23 of Matthew when he says, let no one call you rabbi. Let, don't be the chief kind of teacher, the go-to guy it's a it's a you have to approach that office with humility now god has established giftings for it says in ephesians chapter 4 god has given us apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers so that is one of the offices or roles uh to build up the body of christ but he what may be going on here where people were becoming like uh, little experts try to explain the faith you know again he's reaching a, they're no longer just in jerusalem they're scattered abroad so he's saying, this is not an easy undertaking, and you're going to be judged. If a teacher teaches and misleads, that's a heavy judgment. Jesus called them blind guides. You, you fall into the ditch, and you lead another to fall. And if you'll study the Gospels, am I too loud or too soft? Okay. Um, Jesus generally uh, was not hard on sinners. I mean, in terms of scolding him, rebuking him. You know, if you think uh, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, um, uh, uh, the thief on the cross, etc. You go down. Who was he hard on? Who was he? He was hard on spiritual leaders that were misleading the people. Not all spiritual leaders, but those that were misleading. He said, "You whited sepulchers. You know, you appear nice on the outside and inside are dead man's bones. You want the chief seat at the at the at the feast. You know, you want to be seen praying. You know, think of the, the, the you know." Uh, but you don't care for people. It's like the, the good Samaritan, you know, the priest comes and he goes to that side of the street when he sees the poor guy that was robbed the, and, the, and, the, and the Pharisee goes out. But it's the Samaritan of all people that reaches out in compassion. But you'll see that trend because why? Why is he so hard on religious teachers that are misled? Why? Yeah, good, good. Yes, please. Okay, for what, the, what they talk about filthy lucre. You do it, you're doing this for gain. Even writing off their parents. When you say you write to your parents, you disobey the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father by saying, it's a gift to God. I'm in, I'm in the ministry. This, I'm writing this off so I don't have to take care of my, you know, Corbin. You know, he refers to that. The, yes, Heather.
that's the that's one of the key points is misleading others if, if i sin or you sin or we, we're misled or self-deceived it's on us but for a religious leader who has authority has following has some respectability he's taken a group of people with him do you understand that's that influential position and he's very hard that's why he'll say uh brethren uh, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we he includes himself in this shall receive a stricter judgment and uh again we're looking at the power of words in chapter three of james but um when you consider words and that's where uh poor teachers or good teachers come from if he's a good teacher he's faithful to the word he's rightly dividing the word he's studying to show himself approved uh etc it's all these qualities of a good teacher if he's a bad teacher he's misleading and uh i spoke friday to the men's group and i quoted from the quran chapter surah chapter 4 verse 157 where it says clearly jesus was not crucified on the cross it only appeared that way he did not rise from the dead god took him quickly up to heaven well that's that's a person in a teacher a prophetic role that is misleading you see, but this is actually coming into, into the Christian churches. You understand this? This was an article written last week, uh, Easter week, in the New York Times. I just want to show you how this, if I can pull it up here. Uh, okay. Uh, they, they were just saying around this time, even the, the newspapers get, you know, writing about Christmas and Easter and all that. By tradition and necessity, the major news media generally turn to cover some aspect of Christianity during Christmas and Easter seasons, right. And this is the New York Times. So New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof and Serena Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. Kristof, uh, he says here, interestingly, his interview seems to gravitate around two crucial theological questions, the virgin birth and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what she says. She's the, she's the president of the, this school of divinity. Jones overthrows the entire edifice of Orthodox biblical Christianity. She actually invents an entirely new religion. The article begins when Christoph interviews her and says, do you think Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that, Jones responded, saying, when you look at the Gospels, the story are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Do you see how the teacher, the teacher of teachers, it says there's no bodily resurrection, that the idea of love or good can never be kept down, that it's going to rise up. Do you see? This is what he means here. Teachers can be misled, and we always must be on guard and check doctrine, check teaching, no matter who's doing it, you know, here, there, wherever on the radio, a book, is it lining up with the Word of God? Because, first of all, the very fact that God speaks to us, when you think of the gift of, of speech, words, it's a gift. But it says in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, in past God spoke to our ancestors, notice God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. How did he make the universe? He spoke it into existence. How did he give his word and all his attributes and what he expects of us? How did he do that? Through the word of God, the, the literal. And the ultimate revelation of God, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. You understand, God, as Francis Schaeffer says, God is and he is not silent. He has revealed himself through the word general revelation which is creation specific revelation the prophets the word of god and jesus who will say midway through the gospel of john if you've seen me you've seen the father he's the greatest revelation uh, that uh, god gives to mankind or as the little sunday schooler said uh, jesus is the best photograph god ever took uh, he, he is god in the flesh walking amongst us and therefore god's the idea being he converses with man. He reveals himself to man. Without words, we don't know anything, really. I mean, if I'm here and I'm thinking of a word right now, how many of in this room know what I'm thinking? Huh? She, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I say I'm thinking baseball, 
that which was hidden has now been revealed to everybody in this room through the agency of what? A word. A word. Do you understand? So too, we know nothing about God unless he reveals himself to us. And he does that through creation, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. He does that specifically through his scriptures, the word, and of course, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Any thought on this? We're just kind of backing into the importance of words and why our whole faith is based on words. Um, that, that's simply, and that's how we judge truth, and that's how we judge falsehood. So if anybody is familiar with scripture and they read that article in the New York Times, they would know it's off. But some people might think, I never thought of that. That's a, that's a, you see, that, that's, if we're not really grounded in the word of God, these kind of things could move us a little bit. Any thought on that? Yes, please. Yeah, it's a good, what do you think? I mean, open, that's a good question to open up with. What's your sense of it? Is direction hard for us Christians to believe or receive? Yes, Kim. I think in that case, I, I think that the, the temptation to be seen as extremely bright and intellectual is really what's governing a person like that in that position, in that New York crowd, in that East Coast culture of everybody wants to be the smartest person in the room and if, and if you proclaim Christ that's that you're a second tier thinker and that's you know that so you say that it doesn't it does have the appearance of intellectualism or scholarship right it's not a, yeah everybody wants to be anyone else smart. what else? anyone it's well, a good question yes the resurrection though you oh. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul clearly says, look, if there's no resurrection, our faith is vain, you're a false witness, you're still in your sins, and we above all people should be pitied. It's like you believe in the uh, tooth fairy, or you believe in, I no, hate to dispel that. But, um, but, but is there proof? I mean, if, if you don't believe in any miracle in the Bible, you have to take all the miracles out, okay? Crossing of the Red Sea, the plagues that hit Egypt, Walking on water, feeding the fire. You have to take, if there is a God, then miracles are not only possible, but it's one of the ways God reveals himself. Do you understand? So the resurrection is not a difficult thing. Uh, it's on either side. It's, it's you could say it's difficult for people. Because why? There's no third option. Either Jesus is in a grave somewhere and the, the, he never rose, or he rose as the account says here. There's no... There's no wiggle room here. She tried to make it like a metaphor or a symbol or something. No, you can't. Did he rise from the dead? Why is that the central theme of the Gospels, the central theme of all the sermons in the book of Acts, and the central theme of the epistles? That Jesus came, he was buried, he died for our sins, he was buried according to the scriptures, he rose three days later according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 3. Why is that the twin pillar of the Christian faith. And if those pillars get shaken, like it is here, in this Union Theological, whatever, New York, th then you have a club. You know, you have a nice club, but you have a club. You might do good works, you might have a nice choir. But it's, it's not proclaiming what Paul and those guys, not who are proclaiming, what they were dying for. We just returned from a prison in Rome where they have good evidence that that was Paul's prison. It's a dungeon, you have to go down these steps in there. I mean, why? Yes, please, George. Why do we ignore the testimony? There's so many people, the testimony of so many witnesses to this. It's ignored. Well, a couple things going on here. A lot of people are looking for reasons not to believe. Okay? A lot of people are looking, a lot of people are simply distracted from looking at the evidence. I became a believer at age 27. I just wasn't interested. I didn't, 
You know, I like studying philosophy, and I like to study other religions and Eastern religions, but I, it, I never looked at the evidence. But if you look at the evidence, as the angel says, come and see where, he was, where he's written, you know, look at the evidence. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. The evidence definitely weighs on the favor, and that's just not from the Gospels. It's something happened in that first century. Even critics of Christianity will say, if you start that century, there's no Christianity at the start. Year 4 BC, 4 AD, 5 BC. 60 years later, you get a proconsul that's on the far side of Asia Minor, which is present day Turkey. He's writing letters back to Rome. What are we going to do with this widespread Christianity that's going all over the place? Should we arrest them? Should we persecute them? What happened? Why did this thing explode? They, you know, liars make bad martyrs. <laughs> but if you saw a risen Savior, if you broke bread with him, if you held him, if he commanded you, he, game on. That's why it, it, it fits. The evidence fits. If, if we were trying to sell a religion and make one up here this morning, why, why would they have women being the first one to discover the, risen, the empty tomb? Mary Magdalene, of all people, with seven spirits Jesus cast out of her. Why not have Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea be respectable guys? Why do you show the faults so clearly of your leaders. Peter denied him. Everybody else scatters. One of his followers sold him out. All of this. I mean, if you're selling a car and a guy, potential buyer comes, you're not going to tell him everything wrong with the car right up front. Why is that honesty there? It just reads like a very, uh, it's easier to believe it than to disbelieve it. Somebody, Heather, did you have anything? Somebody else, yes. It's everything. It's everything. Look at Acts chapter 1 just for a moment. Then I'll get back to James. Uh, look at Acts chapter 1. And, and again, Luke writes two, two journals, basically. The Gospel of Luke, and he writes Acts of the Apostles. This guy's a physician. He's got a jeweler's eye for detail. Even critics of Christianity will say, this guy is a... Is a Honest, valid historian. He's writing what he saw, okay? Look what it says here, verse 1, Acts. The former account I made, O Theophilus, same title of the guy he's writing, the opening of the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach, that's the Gospel of Luke, until the day in which he was taken up, his ascension, after through the Holy Spirit he has given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now look at verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive, after his suffering, there you have the death and resurrection, by many what? Infallible proofs. Infallible proofs. Okay? If somebody wants to investigate it, go where the evidence takes you. There was a famous lawyer, atheist, and he wanted to disprove the resurrection, the claims of Christ, and he spent like a year, two years doing this. He was a Harvard lawyer. And he started sifting, and, and he becomes a believer. And he wrote the, anybody know the name of the book he wrote? No? No? Who moved the stone? Who moved the stone? And his, his tagline was, he says, I came to mock, I stayed to worship. Go for the evidence. You know. Okay, let's go back to James here. Um, so now he says, verse 2, chapter 3, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in his word, he is a perfect or fully mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. And again, notice James is including himself in this. Let's just go with this a little bit. Uh, this is a very important phrase, our Lord. And this is high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. Uh, I'm sorry, that's in a red font. But he says, sanctify them, that is to say as believers, in the truth, your word is truth. You understand? He's saying sanctify them or make them holy, they're believers, but make their, their, their sanctification process is based on what? Truth. And what is truth? The Word of God. You understand? There's, there's no doubt here. There should be no confusion. That's why we're into the Word of God. That's why we have to be into the Word of God. Because for a couple reasons. Number one, first, you think there's false teachers among us today? You think they were 2,000 years ago? Yeah. Study the, the epistles are written uh, to people who were in being invaded and infected with false teachers. You know, Peter says this, uh, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prof teachers among you. There's a teacher. 
They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. You see, he's saying, you got to know. We, we got to have the word of God so we can discern. Maybe, you know, there'll, there'll be people who will run with this. You know, there's people, when somebody knocks on your door on a Saturday morning and gives you some pamphlets, they'll go, I never thought about that before. Where you have the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, Jehovah Witness. You see what I'm saying? But if you, if you don't have some grounding in the word, in your faith, it, you could, as Paul says in Ephesians, you could be like a, a, a tumbleweed. You know, you could be too, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not anchored in the word of God. Does that make sense? So that, that, that is how we determine what's the antidote for a lie or falsehood. Truth. You know, if you know the truth, you can, you can cut through. You can cut through. And also for believers. This is after Paul preached in, uh, this is chapter 17 in the book of Acts. It says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message, that's Paul's teaching message, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. You see, they're, they're holding Paul to the standard of scriptural truth. They're not swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. Now they will accept it because it says in the next verse, as a result, many of them believed, as did also the number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. You see, that's, that's, the, that's the key. You know, do you, whether you're judging false doctrine or affirming true doctrine or teaching, you check with the Word of God. Not consensus, not the majority, what do you think kind of a stuff, not that stuff. Any thought on this? It's kind of like foundational stuff here going down. Okay, now he says, uh, now he uses these metaphors, now he's really going to get into this thing about the tongue. And like I said, chapter 2 is about works, visible works. Uh, this will be about words, or particularly the use of, right usage of the tongue. Um, he says, for we all stumble, verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If any man does not stumble in his words, he is a perfect or complete or mature believer, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they might obey us, and we turn their whole body. So he, what he's going to make several contrasts, he uses, I think, six different metaphors here uh, in this chapter 3. But here he's going to talk about a bit you put into a horse's mouth. How many ride horses here? But I mean, if that thing is properly locked in and you got the stirrup, you can control that horse if he wants to be controlled, if he knows you're in control, right? But if you compare that little piece of hardware with the the size of the horse, the power, it's very small, okay? The critical issue here is who's in control? Who's in control? That's why he says, uh, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouth that they might obey us, and we turn their whole body. The same way with our tongue. Uh, is it, who's controlling it? Remember, it says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine. In, it, in there, except well, if you if if you're drunk with wine, you're out of control. Something else is controlling you, as my Irish grandmother used to say. First, the man takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. But but it's control. It's it's, it's controlling him at least for several hours or something. He's beside himself, or he's out of control, or whatever. Something else is 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 controlling his behavior and his words. But if he's under the control of the Holy Spirit, then he's spirit controlled. Something's control. Something's going to control. You understand? And Paul's bringing this out here, but his emphasis here is on the tongue. I read an article once. They said old-time doctors, general practitioners, I don't even know if we still have GPs, do we? They said they could look at a patient's tongue and discern about 30 different potential disease, health of the body, all these other, by looking at color, texture, all this, just looking at the tongue. Could I see all these physical well-being or illnesses of the patient? Well, so too... Our tongue reveals a lot about our spiritual condition. Okay, Paul's going to, uh, James is going to make a big case for that. It's a little tiny member in our body, but it, it's, we're going to see in a minute, uh, it can set the forest on fire. It can, it can you know, it's, it's got the incredible explosive potential. 
Any thought on this? This, this is what he's going to back into, so to speak, here. <coughs> so he says in verse 4, Look also at ships, though they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder where the pilot desires. And there's again, he's got big ship, little rudder that controls this thing, no matter what the outside circumstances, big waves or winds or whatever. But if the pilot is moving the wheel, he, that little rudder is directing that ship. Again, our body, our, our well-being, our spiritual, uh, who we are as a spiritual being, as a Christian, is much of it is determined in the proper usage of our tongue. Okay? Uh, very, very important point. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah. Keep, we'll come back here. But to Isaiah chapter 6 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 6. And, and this is the famous... This could almost be in chapter 1 because this is his commissioning here. Um, it says, we remember, we were doing this last year, Isaiah. It says, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isn't it good to know when the king dies or somebody in rulership and in, 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 in human government that, that that king may come and go, but the king is still on the throne. <laughs> Am I right? He's still in the throne. It's in control. It's kept good to know that sometimes. He says, the year the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. Now, it says here, uh, he says, the, the, the post of the doors are shaken. He's, he's got this heavenly vision, uh, you know, he, he's there, you know, God is revealing things to him in the heavenlies. But verse 5 said this, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of what? So when this man gets a vision of the glory of God, what's the first thing he identifies as being deficient? His, 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 his mouth, his words. You see that? It's very interesting. Now, he says, woe is me. He, he admits it. I mean, he, he goes, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Do you think we've, dwell in the midst of a people today of unclean lips. Yeah, I mean, it's just what it is. Now, here, we know what's going to happen. I mean, you know the story that the seraphim is going to go to the, the, the incense fire there and take a tongue or hot coal, and he's going to touch his lips, right? Then he's going to be commissioned. But the idea being that he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We have, we have to be a separated people to have a message for a people group that aren't separated. You know what I say? We have to have a sanctified mouth because James is going to make a big thing of this later on. You cannot bless and curse with the same mouth. I mean, you can do it, but it's wrong. You cannot bring forth salt water and, and pure water from the same fountain. So too, he's saying to Christians, he's including himself, you got to, this is a very, very important thing here. And going back to Isaiah, he, he realizes that the problem, dwelling amongst the people with unclean lips, we tend to minimize our own speech. And we could say, well, I'm not as bad as them. I don't say that. I may say that. But, I, you, you know, if you look what's happening to, um, who wrote it? Uh, the slouching towards, I'm trying to think. There's going to be the Supreme Court justice, but they can't look at Bork. But he talked about the decline of culture. And he, he is that right? Bork. Uh, and he said one of the indicators is language, the vocabulary we use. He says it's an indicator. It's like a gauge that tells you about the culture. Uh, it's almost like the canary in the coal mine. And he says if you look where we've gone, let's say post-World War II, particularly in the last 30 years, what words are now accepted in popular culture? Unheard of in, in, in my day, you know, growing up in the 50s and you know, Life of Riley and I Love Lucy kind of, you know, now what's general fair out there and exposing the children to the same. You understand? And initially we're a little shocked you might say, Marie tells a story, when we used to go to Thailand, we were over there for four years and then we came home for furlough. And we didn't have a TV back then, we didn't have a laptop computer, we had nothing. It's like, I don't know, it was time to come home after four years. But anyhow, uh, we were back country, but we got home 
and we got a place and then we had a TV. But we both looked at each other and said, I can't believe they're saying that on TV now. Because we were, we had the Rip Van Winkle effect. We were gone from it completely and then coming back to it, you could really see uh, what they call pushing the envelope. You ever hear that expression, pushing the Yes, yes, Kim. No, you're right. I mean, that's why we've moved from the industrial revolution to the informational, you know. And, and there's, there's this, like, almost an overload uh, because we can access it so easily. You know, you just click the mouse or whatever. So to your point, yeah, there's just this kind of... The problem is, is we, don't, we, we lack filters. We don't... And it, it's really sad when it's going to the younger generation. And that is when it's bad. I mean, it's bad enough, but when it's allowed, it's permissible... That, that's, that's bad. That's really bad. And it's acceptable. You can't control it like we're, you know, we used to just no. manage all that. Yeah. So he, he, this idea of I dwell within a people of unclean lips. But God still wanted to use him to reach that people. We, we studied this in the book of Isaiah. God's heartbeat was for the people. Repent, return, remove your idols. You know, he, that was his, you know, his messaging. But he's also had judgment in there, too. Don't get me wrong. That if they don't, this, this will happen. But he wants to use us to be, in a sense, like Isaiah, with sanctified lips, you know, sanctified unto the Lord, that we can be spokesmen. No matter what our position in life or age or career, we, we, we can speak the word of God. You see what I'm saying? We can share the good news. We can disciple. We can sing praises to God. We can pray and intercede for people. To be gifted with the power of speech or language is one of the ways we are made in the image of God. You see? It, it truly is. It's just one of the ways we are made in the image of God. And the fact that we can communicate ideas, you know, concepts, love, mercy, justice, that's, that's powerful. And then to be able to communicate the gospel is extremely powerful. You know, it's a gift. It really is a gift and a responsibility. So I'll show you how this works out. We'll leave Isaiah. Turn to um, uh, Second Thessalonians. Uh, Right, that, that, that's the encouragement. I mean, uh, that we can uh, build each other up. Now, um, Timothy will, he'll, in his message to Timothy, he'll say this. Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter, chapter 3. I'm sorry, I don't know what I said. Oh, we might go there. Let's see. Second uh, uh, Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So he's saying from a little child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now who taught him the Holy Scriptures? If you do a little research. Yeah, Eunice and Lois, which is very interesting. Where is father? Uh, who is the primary responsibility? In a home, if you study scripture, it's, it's the, you know, but. Okay, then he says, all, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. You can start right there. It's profitable. It's got great return on investment. 
for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, that's very similar to the word that James uses, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So there you have this idea that why don't we have more men of God today? Because we don't have more little children being raised in the scripture all through their life. And that's why, uh, where was I teaching? But, uh, oh, I, uh, we had a principal from a Christian school, and I said, I think Barna and Gallup in their polling uh, survey say that once a child that's raised in a church, in a Christian home, goes off to college, uh, five years after he graduates or leaves that setting, uh, they do not have the indicators of a Christian life. I'm not saying they're not Christian, don't get me wrong, but in terms of church attendance, a prayer life, into the scripture, fellowship, sharing the scripture with other by living a sanctified life, you know, to please God, it's not there. 60%, he thinks, he, this guy's a principal, he says, I think it's a little bit higher. Now that, that should not be, you know, I mean, that really should not be. But that shows you the influence of, of the kind of the world uh, that we live in today and the influences that are out there. But the good thing here is, is we've got the, uh, we've got the solution, you know, we've got the remedy. Uh, that's one of the reasons, I mean, we promote teaching, you know, particularly in a small group where we can grow, we can help each other grow in the faith, and as, as, as uh, Peter said. So, okay, let's go back to James and just uh, see how this moves forward. Okay, James chapter 3. He says, and th then he used the idea of ships, the idea there, it will go where the pilot desires. Well, if I want to control my tongue, do I want to really be spirit-controlled? Or am I just in the world and just kind of going along with the world wants to say? What are some of the things we can do in the terms of a negative? Uh, we'll look at the positive use of the tongue, but what's some of the negative? Yeah, as believers. Now remember, our salvation in a sense is based on our, our words. By our words we will be justified. You know, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and you will confess him to be Lord, you, you're saved. I mean, you have to really believe. But it's that confession. Jesus says, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father and his holy angels. So this idea of speaking or verbalizing our faith is extremely important. But what, on the negative side, do you think of anything that we believers might be susceptible to in wrong yeah. usage? Yeah. 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 Pardon? What about one of the And we might even cloak it in Christian lingo, you know, uh, you know, have you heard about so-and-so? Which that could lead into what? Gossip. That could be a problem. Okay. Gratitude, thankfulness. If I'm, if I'm grateful, I mean, when I saw that cell, they think that Paul was in that cell in Rome. It's a dungeon. You have to go down, and they fed him through a hole in the top. And he can say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Sitting in that rat hole, the, this guy, he, 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 how can he be thankful into those conditions unless he knew he was in the center of God's will at that moment? So complaining, what else? What did you say again, George? Division, you're causing, causing division. What might be the motive for that? Pardon me? Jealousy, pride, trying to push your position and trying to get a group that will get behind you to, to forward that agenda, perhaps? Anything else you can think of? Cursing. Cursing? controlling the horse with the bit, if we're not steering that ship with the little rudder, it's going to go to shipwreck. We'll lose our testimony. We'll lose our effectiveness. If we, if we don't, you know, anger, cursing, uh, causing division, judgment, gossip, complaining. I was taking a nap. 
So you're saying what? I didn't. Somebody that's going through a difficult time hears those kind of negative words spoken. Yeah, thank that idea of bullying. But I think Christians do do that. Yeah. They bully, they go, well, they made that mistake, and we can't talk to them, or we don't want to associate with them because they did this instead of. Yeah, you know, all truth does not have to be shared truth. You know what I'm saying? Even though we know there's a true situation here, somebody's going through a difficult situation. That does not necessarily have to be shared with anybody, everybody, in the name of telling the truth. Yeah, gossip. Yeah, gossip could also lead into, into lying, where we, we, they did this, but we're going to elaborate, or we're going to exaggerate a little bit more to make it more, and it could be put under the cover, uh, pray about this. You know, I mean, if, if, if you're in the setting of prayer, then these are real things to, to give the necessary information, but God knows what the situation is. We don't have to go in high detail like National Enquirer. And then here, oh, I got, you know, let me tell you this, you know, just what's the point? You know, you're praying for a situation. Or, but we, that's why I will say in Proverbs, set a watch on my lips, O oh Lord. You know, those, that sanctified lips. And then God uses that in a different direction. Let me ask you this. I remember Bob Hopper brought this up. This is one of his last sermons. I really like this. This guy was tremendous. Uh, tremendous blessing to the church. He, he said, what word did he not like Christians using? What do you think of that? <laughs> you know where luck comes from? Typically, like God, a fortuna. Fortune, good fortune. Yeah. It's the right arrangement of circumstances to your benefit. It, it, it's a form of animism uh, to wish people luck. It, I, I, I won't do it today, but when we travel in Southeast Asia, they have all kinds of things they put in their shops uh, to bring good luck. You know, they have this one, the famous is this cat. That it paws all these battery operated, so that's to bring customers in. But it's amazing how many Christians use that term, uh, good luck. I'm going on a job interview tomorrow. Oh, good luck. You know, well, some of you might say, well, it's no big deal. Well, in a sense, it's not a big deal, but why say good luck when you say God bless you? Or I pray God gives you favor tomorrow. Or, you know, that's powerful. That's good luck. Is, is, you know, but again, any other words that kind of creep in? I don't want to be kind of difficult. I'm just curious what you might think. How about this? Uh, well, uh, my daughter got into the college she wanted. I just hope she stays there. You know where that comes from? That's an Irish superstition. Yeah, the Irish have some issues. Okay. You know where that comes from? It comes from the Druids. It comes from the sacred oaks. Yeah, that comes from the sacred oaks where they would. It, it's also called touching the wood or pressing the or knocking on wood. Uh, you know, he went to the doctor and he got a real good report. Knock on wood. You know. But again, these are, these, are, these are things that enter in the language. I mean, I'm not saying it's like cursing or blast, but it is funny how this enters in. You know, my, my son has a, a big game next week. I'm going to cross my fingers that he does really good when he goes over there. But when you're sensitive to this, you can eliminate, eliminate it, it insert something scriptural that's a true blessing in that context. I wouldn't catastrophize it too much. 
But I do think because no, uh, but I do think I do think we are all in process, Kim. I mean, we're all learning, are we not? And we all help each other. Iron sharpens iron. And once you're made aware of something, uh, it's not like we were terrible sinners because we said these kinds of things or whatever. But because we have the huh? Well, it had an effect, and, and again, but you gotta, here's, here's the deal. You, here's what you want to do. You want to replace two words with two other words to get through life. Do you know what they are? The words you want to get rid of is if only. And you want to replace them with next time. See, if only locks you in the past. But next time, okay, this is what I'm going to say in that situation. You understand? That's going for. I need a redeemer. We all need a redeemer. I need yeah. I, yes, I agree with that. That we just. This is why we cannot fix our problem. You, I can't fix that, but I have a redeemer full of grace and mercy. <coughs> he has done this, but, but I cannot do for myself. Right. That's a good way to put it. And again, the scripture James is including himself in this. He says, "We for we all stumble." Verse two, which I like. We're all he, he, there. These are the great apostles. These are the founders of the early church. John, the great apostle John says in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not. He, he says we. He's including himself in that. And he's a very holy man, I would think, by the end of his life there. But we're, we're all in process. We're all in process. And that's why I think we have to be into the word of God to discuss it, to hear it, to, to let it cut and encourage and, and uh, promote and inspire us. That's end game. Like I always say in these classes, or if I'm teaching in Southeast Asia, wherever, I'm not interested in, quote-unquote, teaching Bible for Bible's sake. It's, it's, it, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't quote me on that. But my thing is, is it transforming us? Is it, we're not hearers of the word. Are we doers? And like when Peter ends his last verse he ever writes to the church in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are we going to be different people when we leave that seminar. Are we going to be different people when we're at, did, 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 did God move us? You know, the Holy Spirit encourage, inspire, convict us that we change behavior. So that's what I want. That's what I look for in my own life, let alone if, I don't even like to call myself a teacher because I know that's what that verse says. But I, <laughs> facilitator, okay, right. But do you understand how, how this is so important? It's, it's as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. Just what it is. Okay, so then he goes and he says, even so the tongue is a little member, verse 5, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? So here he brings this, this symbol. Uh, of course, Proverbs will say, death and life are in the power of the tongue, uh, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. One acorn, literally, with the right time and right conditions can make a forest. Think about it, just a little acorn. But one match... One little match can burn down that forest. Now James is going to make a point of that. A little thing like that, a word spoken, can have tremendous benefits. You know, you think of Jesus meeting with the woman on the well of Samaria. Those, it's a really short I think he makes three statements and two questions. But she goes in, her life has changed, she brings half the town out to meet Jesus. You see, it's just powerful. Or... Uh, Think of Winston Churchill, his famous speech when Britain was really under attack in the Blitzkrieg, and he says, uh, never give up, never give up, you know, we'll fight. You know, that, those words had power, you know, words have power to create or destruct. And when I used to be a social worker in child abuse, we used to have this thing called uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what it meant in child development was if you tell a child, well, you're not going to be any good. You're going to be like your father. He was an alcoholic. He didn't, and, and then the child keeps getting that downloaded. You see, it's setting up an expectation. And it's almost as, not that he will become that, but you, a, a person of authority, respected authority in his life, kept putting those words into him rather than say, you can do it. You've got great gifts. You can, you know, and to go that direction. You know, it's, it's the, the, the power of words are just uh, so, so important. And I'm not a name it and claim it kind of these guys on TV, no. Uh, we had an old missionary came to our Bible school and he says, if you guys name it and claim it, you believe in name it and claim it, then name a province in China and go claim it for the Lord. <laughs> it's cute. So here's where he says, uh, a tongue is a little member. He stresses this idea, it's little, but it has a great impact or great effect. 
Verse 6, the tongue is a fire. Here's the fire. A world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. You see, where is this coming from? See, we're going to see that next week when we see how the demonic influences come into the life of even a believer. But it's that idea, it, it comes in. You know, it comes in. And, and Jesus says something very interesting in Luke chapter 11. He says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Fathers. He says, fathers, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more so your heavenly father will give you what? Let me, I, I think it's Luke 11. Let me go there. I'll start wrapping it up here too. Um, It's the idea he's going to promise them the Holy Spirit. He says, if if you ask, my my Heavenly Father will give you the uh, Holy Spirit. The idea being here that we have the power or the, 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 the ability to ask God for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see? That's why he says before that, if, if, if you fathers, if your child asks you for an egg, you won't give him a scorpion. If he asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake, right? And in that same passage, then he'll say, ask, you know, in your heavenly father will give you the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Why that's so important, the previous chapter, Jesus sent out his apostles and he gave them power over serpents and scorpions. It's a metaphor of the demonic. So if we walk in the Holy Spirit, we can be spirit-controlled, and that will control even our, our speech, our tongue. You see? That, that's, that's the critical issue, to be an Isaiah in a culture that's a people of unclean lips. And again, not judging that culture, because we all, once we come to Christ, we should be exiting out of that and be sanctified, and, and then we have a message. But if, if our words don't change, we're no different than the people we're trying to reach. If we complain, if we gossip, if we talk about this, if we this, let alone, you know, bad jokes or anything, then we diminished our witness. It doesn't mean we're not a Christian. We really diminish our effectiveness. Uh, pardon me? That's right. No, there is. There is. You know? And it's the reason I, I, I was very scriptural in the car I chose because it says in the book of Acts, Oh, they were all gathered together in one accord. Yeah, so. All right, on that note, I'm going to wrap it up in James. Okay. Um, Okay. So, James will then say, um, he goes, like I said, I think there's six in total, these metaphors he's using. Uh, Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Notice all, you know, tigers, elephants. He says, but the tongue, he says, it's hard to control. Because if I get stressed, if I get angry, if I, you know, it can can be released. You know, the tongue... To be self-controlled in that, he said, you'll be a fully mature Christian. If you can control your tongue, you know, it's really quite amazing what he's saying here. And then he says, uh, uh, but look at this verse 8, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. You know, that, that has the, like a, a snake, you know, a viper. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought to not be so. And then he brings up his last metaphor is this idea of spring water, fresh water cannot come from salt water or bitter. Then the fig tree. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. We'll close. Look at Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. We'll close on this. Because we're using these metaphors in, in, in for teaching point. Look what Jesus says to the uh, religious people of his day. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. 
Uh, Matthew 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, be an evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's critical. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why it'll say in Proverbs, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the very issues of life. Each one of us is responsible for the condition of our heart. We just are. You know, how we take care of it or don't take care of it, that's on us as individuals. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, for every idle... Now watch this, verse 36. For I say to you that every idle word men speak, these kind of things, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Do you see the importance of words? It's very, very important. Any closing thoughts on this? We'll pick up on this next week. Yes, please. Bobby? Yeah, Romans chapter 8. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, any thought on that? When he says the heart, Jesus said, out of the heart, the, the mouth speaks, you know. And then later on, he'll expand on it. Within the heart is, is uh, anger and murder and adultery and all this is first in the heart. James talks about that. We looked at that. It's first conceived in the heart. It's almost like a birth process. He says, first it's conceived and then it incubates and then it comes forth. The heart is the inner core of a human being that when he's not a believer, he's, it, it, the heart is separated from God. You understand, the life, the plug is pulled. There's no life force going into the heart. And that's why man, I always say, don't, don't be shocked when a sinner acts like a sinner because that's what sinners do. I mean, by nature. When we accept Jesus, it's promised in the New Covenant in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, we have a new heart. And now the, the Holy Spirit inhabits us. Not a force, a person inhabits us. But we are responsible to work in concert with, with that Holy Spirit when he convicts, illuminates, guides us. That's why it'll say in Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God and be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. So that's part of the heart, wanting the mind to be renewed. Conscience is sensitized, but the heart is now being changed. Not, never, it's never going to reach completion on this earthly time. But it should be uh, being transformed. Yes, please. The heart reflects the connection we have with God. Yeah, once we accept, no once we accept Christ, that's why. That's why. Without that, no, the heart's closed. That's why it'll say, Ephesians chapter two, verse one: We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, we're not physically dead. We're not mentally dead, but that connection, that vibrancy of the heart is disconnected from God. What Jesus has achieved is the most remarkable thing. That's why, in a sense, Christianity isn't a religion. I mean, it's, it goes beyond that. Uh, Paul will say it's the greatest mystery throughout all the ages. What is it? Again? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Greatest mystery, greatest benefit, greatest prize, greatest fill in the blank. Yep, heaven. A little bit louder.
right. And <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I'll definitely close on this, but it will say in Hebrews, be on guard, be watchful, and do not allow a root of bitterness take hold in your heart. This is written to believers. How, how does a root start in the normal, in the backyard? A little seed. But if it takes root, and if I incubate it and think about it, and you know, it's, it, it, and it says, by it, many are defiled. Think of a really embittered person you've known in your lifetime. I'm thinking one, okay. Okay, did, did that affect just that person, or did, did it go wider? Where did that start? It started, first of all, in the heart. And we'll discuss this next week, or two weeks down the road. Anyone else? Okay. All right, who'd like to close us then in a word of prayer, please?